We just can't know where we're going as a nation until we have a better grasp of where we've been. Dr. King spoke to the, what he called the evil triplets of militarism, racism, and materialism that continue to confront America. And he was speaking about that back in the 1960s. Coming up, Adam Russell Taylor recommends places we can visit to better understand the work of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. We'll also hear about the moments of joy young people in the Bamiyan Highlands of Afghanistan got to experience when they were introduced to the thrills of downhill skiing and snowboarding. There's far more interest than there is equipment. And so what they would do is they would go around and collect wood off of sheds or barn doors or whatever. Tim Neville tells us about the hopefulness he found at the Afghan Ski Challenge before the Taliban took over the country. And listeners share more of their fondest travel memories. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. The simple fun of slushing down a snowy slope brought real hope to the people in one of Afghanistan's oldest towns, at least for a few years. Travel writer Tim Neville tells us what he found at the Afghan Ski Challenge in Bamiyan Province in just a bit. And listeners share some of their fondest travel memories with us a little later in the hour. Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with a return visit from Adam Russell Taylor to help us commemorate the Martin Luther King Day holiday. To mark the stories of America's long-troubled history with civil rights and to celebrate the progress the nation has made and will continue to make, Let's plan a road trip to actual sites that have been part of our nation's journey. It'd be great if every American visited the major museums that focus on the civil rights struggles of African Americans. To inspire us to follow the trail of civil rights history that starts in the South and extends beyond, let's check in with Adam Russell Taylor. Adam is the president of Sojourners. It's a nonprofit organization that's advocated for social justice issues from a Christian perspective. I've been a fan of Sojourners for years, and I love Adam's work there. And Adam joins us now to inspire us to embark on a history trip across America that we might call the Martin Luther King Trail. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So what makes up the Martin Luther King Trail, and why does it matter? Well, I really believe that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most significant leaders, and I would even call him a prophet, in our nation's history. He helped to transform our nation clearly joined by so many other civil rights leaders, Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and Bob Moses and others. And so I, I think you know, that's an, a critical reason why we should learn more about King, but also understand that we can't freeze frame King just in one speech, like the I Have a Dream speech. You know, Dr. King spoke to the what he called the evil triplets of militarism, racism, and materialism that continue to confront America. And he was speaking about that back in the 1960s. And those are still three challenges that we face today. So I think in so many ways, his words were quite prescient. You know, one theme of your book is that we can't know where we're going as a nation until we have a better grasp of where we've been. And we can get that grasp, I think, through travel. One of your chapters is called Telling the Whole Truth to Set Us Free. And in it, you reflect on your experience visiting the National Memorial and the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, how were these sites impactful for you? Yeah, they are extremely transformational. So many of us might be familiar with Brian Stevenson, who started the Equal Justice Initiative. There's now a movie about his book, Just Mercy. 
he had the vision to create the first ever museum or, or well, first a memorial dedicated to tell the story, a very ugly part of our nation's story about lynching, about the 4,000 blacks that were lynched between 1877 and 1950. Now, this is a part of our history that we have often erased or buried. It's not a comfortable one, but I, I agree that barring the words of James Baldwin, those who refuse to acknowledge their history remain captive to it. Oh. And so, you know, this memorial is so powerful. He was able to erect a monument, these kind of bronze monuments for all of the, the victims of lynching. And there's one for each of the 800 counties where there are documented cases of lynchings. And what's so brilliant about this is not only can you go and you witness this and you see, you know, these big columns, bronze columns with the names etched in them, but he, he created a replica column that he wants each and every courthouse and county to reclaim to put up their own bronze column in a public space where these lynchings actually happened. And I'm hoping that he's gotten more traction in getting counties across the South in particular to be willing to, to show and to tell some of this history. So where exactly is this uh, and how would we find it as travelers? So it is in Montgomery, Alabama. And not only is there the National Memorial, there's also what's called the Legacy Museum, uh -huh. which does a brilliant job of not only telling the history of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, but doing it in a way that connects the dots between our past and our present. You know, it tells a seamless story of how racism evolved over time and continues mm -hmm. to show up in our system of mass incarceration and in racialized right. policing and other challenges. Adam Russell Taylor is the president of the nonprofit religious and social justice organization Sojourners. Adam's written A More Perfect Union to provide a new vision for building a community with room for everyone. His organization's website is sojo.net, and you can follow Adam on Twitter at Rev Adam Taylor. Adam, one of the to me the, the mall in Washington D.C. is 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 such an important part of our of our culture and our soul as a nation. And one of the newest additions to the mall is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Tell us about the significance of that. Yeah, it is a remarkable museum, and I really hope that every person listening, every American, is able to visit it. It took years and years to mount a campaign to convince the Smithsonian to build a museum, and I'm grateful they did. When you start out in the museum in the basement, you start out having to confront the history of slavery. And as you move up the museum, it starts to you know, get more and more hopeful in a lot of ways. You know, you go through the period of Jim Crow segregation, and then you get to the civil rights movement. And then by the time you get to the top, you know, they have these amazing exhibits about all the ways African-Americans have contributed to music, you know, the creation of jazz music and blues and, and so much more. So it is one of my favorite museums in the country, and it takes much more than a day to do it justice. And mm -hmm. I really do hope and pray everyone has a chance to see it. So they can put that on our list when we go to Washington, D.C. And, you know, I was so impressed by the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. I went there after dark, and it was just, for me, it was just a, a magical moment to be there uh, and read the inscriptions and to think of, of the importance of this man. No question. Um, the 16 quotes that are inscribed on the wall at the memorial are extremely powerful. And, you know, I, I don't envy the committee that had to select just 16, because there's certainly so many more that they could have chosen from. But the memorial is, is really worth seeing. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Adam Russell Taylor. His book is A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. And we build the beloved community. We overcome our divisiveness 
by traveling and learning from our history. And let's head south here and talk uh, a little more about the civil rights era and the museums we might find down there. In Memphis, there's the National Civil Rights Museum. What's that one like? That one is really significant because it literally is built into the, the Lorraine Motel, which is where King was tragically assassinated in 1968. And so you can see the balcony where he was shot. The museum also has lots of other, you know, really powerful exhibits as well. But I think the kind of signature thing that is really worth experiencing and seeing is the site where Dr. King had his life stolen from him. So that would be in Memphis. And when I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think of Atlanta. Uh, And there are several sites worth considering when you go to Atlanta next time. Absolutely. So just a little personal parenthetical note. When I went to college in 1994, just aging myself a little bit, but I went to Emory University and the first Sunday that I was in Atlanta, I went to go worship at Ebenezer Baptist Church and just was blown away. That's the home church of Dr. Martin Luther King, joined the church and then started volunteering at the Martin Luther King Center for Nonviolence. Now, back when I was Wait a minute, you went to Ebenezer Baptist Church and, and you were just blown away by physically going there and worshiping. Can anybody drop in on a Sunday service there and enjoy that inspiration? Yeah, they sure can. Um, the original church is still there, and you can take a tour of it. The current Ebenezer Baptist Church just kind of outgrew that building, so they built a large church complex that's literally right across the street adjacent to the museum. Mm-hmm. It's also pretty important to note that the current pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, is now a senator in the United States Congress, Raphael Warnock is the first black senator ever elected in Georgia. Wow. So then you head out into Atlanta, inspired to sightsee with that in mind. What are you going to go to? So I, I definitely would go to the King Center itself, where you have what's called the Eternal Flame, which is where the ashes of Dr. King is are buried. And across the street, there's a whole museum about Dr. King's life, which is really worth seeing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a newest addition, which is the Museum for Human Rights, that I think was built about 10 years ago and really tells the story of how Atlanta and Dr. King became an inspiration and beacon for supporting human rights causes around the world. And so it just Mm. does a great job of connecting the civil rights movement with kind of what happened in Tiananmen Square in China and what happened with the apartheid system or anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and, and many more stories like that. Adam, we've just had time to touch on a few of these sites, but if you want to learn more about civil rights and modern Luther King related sites, Uh, where would we look? Well, there's a civil rights trail with more than a hundred sites in 15 different states. And so I definitely encourage you to visit some of those. I mean, they are spread out all over the country. So we'd have to kind of do a cross-country tour to really do justice to all of them. All over the country. Um, Talking about all of these important sites and so on, you know, for a family that is privileged and white, it can be distant. And we have a responsibility not to make it distant. But for a family um, like yours, uh, your mom was black, your dad was white, uh, your wife's from Jamaica, uh, your kids are young and inundated with all sorts of complicated news. How are you handling parenting when it comes to exposing your boys to this part of our national heritage? I really feel strongly that the more we expose them in age-appropriate ways to the fullness of our history, the more we empower our children. I think we do a disservice when we try to negate or deny, you know, parts of our history. So I really tried to expose them to it. Um, And I've taken them to the National African-American History Museum. We have, you know, done a lot of work to try to help them understand our nation's history and, you know, to be 
certainly proud of the ways in particular that African-Americans have so often been a democratizing force in our, in our nation's history to call us to be our best selves and to fully live out the promise of liberty and justice for all. In your book, A More Perfect Union, you wrote about a letter you wrote to your young sons. I thought that letter was so poignant, and it, it spoke to me, and it could speak to any caring American. To wrap our discussion up right now, could you just sum up the message you gave to your sons that we can all think about? Well, I try to impress upon them that these divisions are not new. Our country has been divided from the very beginning, particularly over the compromise around slavery, making African-Americans three-fifths of a person, but that we are on a journey of striving to create a more perfect union because the beauty and the brilliance of this country is in the striving to create a more perfect union, which is tied to the work of creating a more inclusive and just America. And then I, I ended by saying that it's their generation that ultimately I think has the greatest power and potential to get this right, in part because of the work that's been done before them, but also because I think they're a generation that is truly going to get it and is going to help us embrace this vision. Boy, that's reason for hope. Adam Russell Taylor, the book A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your work. Thank you. We'll hear what hope the Afghan Ski Challenge brought for a season to the people of Bamyan in the middle of Afghanistan. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. In 2010, a Swiss journalist flew to Afghanistan to report on the resurgence of tourism in the area. He didn't find the affluent tourism scene he was promised, but he did find a beautiful storybook set of mountains nestled in the valley outside of Bamiyan. It inspired Christopher Zerker to bring skiing to the region with the Afghan Ski Challenge competition. Nine years later, but before the Taliban takeover of the country, journalist Tim Neville flew to the region to see the men, women, and children of Bamiyan and the newly formed ski scene they'd been trying to create. Tim joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what it was like to see young women flying down the mountain with world champion dreams, little boys on homemade skis dreaming of real skis, and how skiing brought light and laughter to Afghanistan, a region plagued by decades of war. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rick. Absolute pleasure. Wow, skiing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, Would have thunk. Is there actually skiing in Afghanistan? There's wonderful skiing in Afghanistan. Now it's not Vail or Aspen or something like that. You have to hike up the mountains to earn your own turns. But the culture and the vibe is very much, well, it was very much alive. Yeah, of course, it's tragic what's going on now. And that's kind of why we want to talk to you is because I just really like to humanize Afghanistan. It's a country of millions of people living their lives just like we are, but they don't have the stability and, the, of course, the affluence and the freedoms that we have. But we can be hopeful. Talk about your skiing experience, because you wrote about uh, with a 16-year-old boy named Mahdi. Yeah, yeah. So that was on the actual ski challenge day, which is a race. It's a two-day race that they hold. But around this race, there's a whole community that, that comes out to support it. And so it's about 50 boys now. When it first started, it was maybe 10 boys. Now it's about 50. And it also includes 15 women. And so for weeks before this event, they come out and they practice hiking up these hills, coming down these very challenging slopes. And so I went to not just watch the event and, and hang out with the various skiers, but to see this community and see how skiing has affected their lives. Well, first of all, 
when my image of an Afghan person is not somebody with fancy boots and and skis that that release and uh, and goggles and all that, uh, but do they have that kind of gear, or is it kind of makeshift? It's both. So something interesting has really happened. So when Christoph came over from Switzerland to to start this thing, he came back with five hundred pounds of of luggage, including maybe fifteen pairs of skis, because of course the Afghans didn't have anything like that, and so. That was sort of the seed equipment, if you will. But then other equipment began to trickle in. For instance, when the Slovenians, when they were there as peacekeepers, when they left, they left all of their old Elan skis. Elan is a Slovenian brand. And so you see all these kids wearing old uh, Slovenian gear. Or the most remarkable thing, though, Rick, is how just ingenious and creative these kids are. Because... There's far more interest than there is equipment. And so what they would do is they would go around and collect wood off of sheds or barn doors or whatever. Then they would use plastic that they had taken off of cooking canisters from Iran, because apparently that's the thickest plastic. It's this bright yellow Mm -hmm. plastic. And they would carve the skis, put this yellow plastic base on the bottom of them, and then literally nail their tennis shoes into the boards. And that would be what they wow. would ski on. So it's just remarkable. Now, Tim, would they hike up the mountain or would they have some kind of a lift? Well, so both. Most of the time they would hike up because that's just what there is. I mean, there's no other way to do it, really. There right. was a ski lift of sorts, it sounds like, around the Kabul region, the capital, uh-huh. in the 60s. But it stopped running with the Soviet invasion in the late 70s. But then about two years ago or so, maybe three years ago or so, some crafty Afghans got together outside Bamiyan, so kind of in the central highlands there, and took a three-wheeled motorbike called a Zarang, wrapped a rope around one of the wheels, ran this rope maybe 500 feet up a small hill, and then that became a rope tow. And watching these kids use this was just absolutely incredible because the guy sitting on the throttle would, you know, a, a skier would come up and say, okay, I'm ready and hold <laughs> on to this rope. And then the guy would hit the throttle like he was going to do a wheelie or something. <laughs> and they would just rocket up the slope, just fly. Probably burning their hands or ruining their mittens. Totally. But the first time I saw it, I thought, oh man, their gloves have to just be smoked. And sure <laughs> enough, when they came down, I looked and they had burns right through their gloves. Oh, man. Well, I can kind of relate to that when I was a kid grabbing their rope toe, but I'm sure nothing like that. Tell us more about this Christopher Zerker. He's a Swiss journalist. He went back, what, 10 years in a row with this dream. And would it, little by little, he would bring gear and he would inspire locals to get on board. And uh, tell me a little more about him. Yeah, it's a really interesting guy. Great guy. I got to hang out with him while I was over there. So he first came to Afghanistan, like you said, right when he thought Tourism. It was about a decade after the Taliban had been overthrown. So he comes back, hears tourism's taking off. It's not happening. But he looks around, he sees all these mountains. And so he asks people, does anybody ski here? And the Afghans, the reply was always the same. No Sikhi, no Sikhi. So he thought, well, let's change this. So he came back. He was always just looking for a good story. So he mm-hmm. came back thinking, oh, it'd be fun to teach the Afghans how to ski, maybe make some sort of a little event out of it, write a great story, and that'd be that. Well, he does just that, except the Afghans had very little interest in actually skiing because 
think about it. If you spend your life walking around in the mountains, tending sheep and livestock or whatever, uh, you're yeah. not going to want to, why are you going to go spend your holiday or your free time walking around in the mountains again? So he convinces a few of them to do it. And then they just get absolutely ridiculed. Like the entire villages would come out and watch these guys flailing around and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. So he decides to create an actual event with actual prizes. And so that sort of makes things a little bit more serious. And long story short, the story runs and he gets quite a bit of criticism for this when it runs in Switzerland. People are saying, look, Afghanistan is this place of immeasurable suffering. There's just war. Why in the world would you go there and kind of do this like little funny side story that, you know, this lark almost. And mm -hmm. he kind of bristled at that. He's like, wait a minute. Look at yeah, our society. Fun. Yeah. Exactly. Like our whole society is built, it seems like, on distraction. So even if things are terrible, why not be yeah. able to step out and have some fun? This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Neville, and he's written an article about skiing in Afghanistan and a Swiss journalist's um, dogged attempt and work in creating what sounds like potentially a wonderful area to ski in. And he created the Afghan Ski Challenge. Tim, can you explain the Afghan Ski Challenge? What events do they have? So the actual challenge itself is a two-day event. It starts off with the women's slalom event. Now, that alone is something remarkable because when this first began, there were no women really allowed to do this. And slowly that began to change. And then finally, it was just, they were like, of course the women can do this. And so, and that created a whole nother universe, let's say, of women sports and activities and programs to teach confidence and so on. So the first event is the women's slalom event where they would hike up a slope that the boys would prepare just by side slipping their skis. There's no grooming machines. So they right. would just go up and slide down and create a slope. And then they put flags in it and they would have to ski around them. And so when the women would ski, there would be like hundreds of, of villagers that would come out and watch. And there was no laughing this time. I mean, of course, there was laughing and fun, but not, but not as like ridiculing. When women would come down, they would, you know, maybe one would fall and, and she'd get back up and just determined to make it down to the bottom. And the crowd would just go crazy. Oh, fairy, oh, fairy, oh, fairy, which is sort of like, great job. You know, another woman, she came down and they're all wearing headscarves. It's still a very traditional society. But one, one woman coming down and her scarf comes off and the crowd just goes crazy. And I, I look at this other guy next to me and kind of like, oh, my God, is this okay? And he's like, oh, scandalous totally joking. And, yeah. And the, the women were empowered by this. I love how you write 18-year-old uh, uh, Nazima said, skiing taught me I can take care of myself. And she became the first Afghan woman to win a, middle, a medal in an international ski competition in Pakistan. That's true. And that was also the very first time she'd ever been on a proper ski lift. And so for her, that was oh almost goodness. just as exciting. And then Naz Nazira you wrote about, 17 years old, and, and she says, happiness is mine to make. What a beautiful thing to give people this opportunity to just have a break from the drudgery of their life and, and feel the rough and tumble joy of hitting those moguls and the wind and the, the cheers of the crowds and especially women on the slope. That was the real joy of, of going there, Rick, is skiing, yes, is fun, but it was everything else that the sport was doing for these locals, for these people there that just was so touching and 
and honestly, it was an easy way in for someone like me, an American who, who yeah. doesn't know the first thing really about Afghanistan. Here was this thing we shared in common, right. and we could sort of relate over that. Now, Tim, Bamiyan, it's like north of Kabul, right? It was in the news because of the Taliban bombing of the big Buddhas there? It's to the no, west, west of Kabul. West of Kabul, that's right. How far west? And tell us about Bamiyan in general, because uh, hippies used to go there back in the 70s, too. Bamiyan was very popular back in the 60s and early 70s with the hippies who had come through. It was a very spiritual, just cosmic kind of place. And on the northern edge of the city, there are these sandstone cliffs, and there were these two giant Buddhas, about 180 feet tall, carved in the 6th, 7th century AD, something like that. Hmm. This was sort of the westernmost fringes of Buddhism, I believe. Then, yeah, in 2001, the Taliban came through and just blew them up. And I remember asking people, I was like, well, how did you feel about when they did that? And they're like, we were worried about food. We were worried about mm -hmm. not getting murdered. So they had much bigger things to worry about. But it really yeah. was a loss for humanity. It's a fascinating part of Afghanistan. And could you imagine it in some future time when they've got freedom and, and, a, and a reasonable economy as a skier's Shangri-La? I mean, it just sounds like a beautiful potential for skiing in that part of the uh, of the world. Well, it's a very dangerous thing, in my opinion, to give up on hope, but it does seem fairly bleak at the moment, I think, mm -hmm. which is terrible because the potential there is just outstanding. There, these are these beautiful, the Koi Baba mountain range and the Hindu Kush mountain range. I mean, these are major, major mountains with just mm -hmm. limitless skiing. In the summertime, you have a nearby national park. It's this series of six blueberry lakes with natural travertine dams. There's hiking. There's all sorts of like horseback riding. There's even mountain biking now. So mm. it really is, you could see it being a, a four-season destination. If it were anywhere else in the world, it would be, it'd be like a Switzerland, really. You know, I just think it is so important to remember the potential for joy in a community or in a society like Afghanistan, considering the very difficult and tragic times they're in right now. Describe the joie de vivre, just the fun-loving, vibrant vibe of the skiers back in the good times before the Taliban victory. Well, I can tell you one quick story about my experience there, and that was one of the very first days I was there. We skied up, we, you know, you hike up with special equipment, up to this ridge and then drop down into another valley uh, to a little village called Jarwazi. And there, our guide, this guy named Ali Shah, comes out. He says, okay, just hang on. I guarantee you the whole village will come out. And so we're just sitting there on a rock. And sure enough, like all of a sudden, this one kid shows up and he's got a pair of homemade skis. And then another kid shows up. And he's got a pair of homemade skis. And then another and another and another. And next thing you know, we're surrounded by like 15 kids. And they're all just so excited that we're there. They're like playing in the snow, running up and down. There's little kids like just sliding on those Iranian oil, cooking oil canisters. Mm. You know, there's a pent-up passion for skiing here. I think as if, you know, the times were right, you unleash all of that desire to ski that you can see in the homemade ramshackle gear. It could be amazing. Oh, absolutely. There's something very intuitive about just playing and sliding around on yeah. snow. Yeah, so we just took turns. Like I would step out of my equipment and they'd stick their bare feet right in my boots and just go and laugh and giggle. And for a moment, Rick, it was like, wow, everything is just Life is normal good. here. Yes, exactly. Tim Neville's our guest from his home studio in Bend, Oregon right now on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Tim's an avid skier who frequents Mount Bachelor and has written about his adventures in more than 70 countries on all seven continents. He writes for Outside Magazine and the New York Times and has won Lowell Thomas Awards for his travel articles. You'll find more of his articles at timneville.net. You know, Tim, let's just, uh, we just have a, a short time left, but of course, uh, 2021, Bamiyan fell the day before Kabul to the Taliban. And it sounds like you've got a lot of friends in Bamiyan. What is the plight of these people now? Are they still there? Have they escaped? Is, is there anything left of the, of the Bamiyan Ski Club? Yeah, it's quite tragic. So every day I get messages through Facebook or, or WhatsApp. Some have escaped, like the women skiers. A lot of them have escaped to Rome, Malaysia. Some are here in the U.S. Some of the other uh, skiers have ended up also in France. New Zealand, I believe, they're, they're scattered, but there are quite a few who are still stuck in Bamiyan, and they're, they're literally prisoners in their own homes. They don't feel safe to go out. Is the Taliban anti-sports? Yes, exactly. They're very, yes, that's it, exactly. Just anti-sports, anti-laughing. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak for them, obviously, but it would very much seem that way. Hmm. 39 million Afghans living now under the Taliban, can you, with your intimacy, really, with that culture, of course there's cons because of the end of the war, but are there any pros because of the end of the war? Well, you know, it's interesting. When Before we skied down into that village with all, where all the boys came out with their homemade skis, I was sitting on a ridge with, with my guide, and we were cracking walnuts just talking. And one of the things he was saying was, if peace is going to come to Afghanistan, it's going to be on Afghan terms. There's no foreign power that's going to be able to come in and impose peace. It's entirely up to them. Mm-hmm. So I guess if there's anything positive that can be said about this is, well, maybe here's their shot. Tim Neville, it's been so great to be able to kind of just vicariously imagine the people, the humanity of Afghanistan. I, I just, I so thankful that people like you have been there and can know these people, other than the tragic news stories that we uh, have to look at. Tell us one intimate moment that you cling to that gives you hope that, that there really is that spark and that joy that can survive the nightmare they're going through right now. So on one of the last days I was there, we skied down into another village. And as we're walking back to our vehicle, this little boy comes walking out and he says, Amu, Amu, which is a term of endearment, it means uncle. And he's talking to our guide. He says, uncle, uncle, is today the day you have found us real skis? And my guide, Ali Shah, he says, no, I'm sorry, not today. But what Ali Shah didn't know was that my daughter, who was about their same age, had just outgrown her skis and I had brought them over. So I gave them to Ali Shah. I was like, look, you know, I didn't want to hand those over to him so I, or to the kids. I, I thought he should do that. Weeks later, I get this picture from him, and there is this little kid wearing my daughter's skis with the boots and the poles. And so at night sometimes, Rick, I like to think that that kid is out there enjoying those skis, enjoying Mm. just being a kid, just enjoying gravity, enjoying Mm. playing on snow. Because honestly, Mm. who doesn't love that? Tim Neville, you are a good example of how one traveler can make a difference in this world. Travel, it brings people together in so many beautiful ways. Thank you for reporting on the Bamiyan Ski Club. And uh, let's hope we've got some skiing in Afghanistan in the not-too-distant future. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. 
A few years ago, Tim Neville told us about the unlikely ski resorts he found in Kosovo and North Korea. You can hear that interview at ricksteves.com slash radio. Listeners share their own memorable travel adventures next at 877-333-RICK. Even if you're not up for the challenges that come with international travel right now, our memories of great journeys we've had can stir up our positive endorphins and get us ready to see more of the world as soon as we're able. We've invited a few of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners to share some of their most memorable travel stories with us right now at 877-333-7425. Or by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Larry's calling in from Boston. Hi, Larry. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Where have you been traveling lately? Uh, So my wife and I, in December of 2017, we traveled to Barcelona right in the midst of the Catalonian independence movement, actually shortly right after the Declaration of Independence. And we traveled there, and I wasn't sure what to expect, whether it was going to be tense or if people were going to be sort of on edge. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by how calm and how normal um, life was when we were there. And we actually ended up being there for about four days, and we had really a, a, a wonderful time. And you almost wouldn't have known that the independence movement was in the air. And we uh, Larry, just so our listeners understand the context here, of course, uh, recently, uh, Catalonia, the uh, northeastern uh, province or, or district of Spain, has wanted to be independent. And they actually had the nerve to declare their independence. And People were out in the streets, and Spain was confronting that quite strongly. From a distance, people thought, oh, you wouldn't want to travel in Barcelona, which is the capital of Catalonia. But I was there also during that time. And uh, while loved ones might have been anxious for us when they looked at the news, when you were right there, it did feel like a venting of a, of a, a national pride, and there were people on the streets, but it certainly didn't feel like a dangerous time to be there. Was that, was that your uh, experience? That was exactly my experience. When you had conversations with people, they certainly were uh, happy to explain what they thought, and Mm -hmm. there were certainly a lot of people there who had the Catalonian pride and believed in the independence movement, but people were calm, and And, they were just, they were hospitable. And it's a a complicated issue, and I I just, I really appreciate that about travel and and people-to-people travel, because whether it's being in Scotland when they might be voting for their independence or not from London or being in uh, Barcelona when they're wondering are they going to be part of a country ruled by Madrid or not. Uh, you know, the unfortunate thing about these these votes is it's all or nothing. It's complete independence or uh, complete uh, non-independence. And almost everybody falls somewhere in the middle, but they have to choose one or the other. When you get a chance to be there, it's so fun to see the, the fine little gradients of people's uh, position on that complicated issue. Absolutely. So when you were in Barcelona, you were able to just do what you want to do in, in spite of the um, parades and the demonstrations and streets closed down? We did, yeah. I mean, we were actually able to walk up past the Placa de Catalunya, and we saw some peaceful um, gatherings. But other than that, we were able to visit the Gaudi sites and mm-hmm. take a bike tour of the city and enjoy all the food and the culture. And it was almost like... Um, you wouldn't have noticed that there was that sort of political issue happening at the time. You probably just saw a lot of those yellow and red striped uh, flags of Catalan. Those were everywhere, hanging from windows and, and Larry, you could did buy you, T-shirts, I think, too. Did you notice, Larry, some of those uh, yellow and red striped flags had a triangle with a single star in it? That was right. A few of them did, or maybe half of them did, had the blue, the blue, blue triangle. triangle on them. Okay, so you can fly the Catalan flag without saying, we want independence. 
But if you put the blue star in it, or the blue triangle with the star in it, that's the Cuban flag, or, or the star from the Cuban flag. And Cuba broke away from Spain with a similar kind of uh, movement for independence. And Catalan people, when they put that Cuban uh, element on their flag, they say, we want to do like the people of Cuba did, to break away from Spain and have our own independence. Ah, that would make sense. So those are sort of the more vocal... They're the more extremists uh, on that movement. Yeah. There's a lot of pride. Uh, There's a lot of um, what they call nations without states. When I talk to my Catalonian friends, I say, okay, I'm trying to sort it out. Now, you're a region of Spain. No, we're not a region of Spain. We are a nation without a state. And, uh, you know, people draw borders after wars, and a lot of ethnic groups do not get their own border, and they're just told to make do within that bigger country. And and uh, you can't just wish these problems away. These are ethnic Catalans, and they're going to want their autonomy to a certain degree. They're going to want to teach their kids their language and wave their flag. And they've come a long way, but uh, in a lot of their minds, they still have more to go. Absolutely. All right. Hey, well, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Take care. And Jake's calling in from Bend in Oregon. Hi, Jake. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I have kind of a funny travel story for you. Uh-huh. Um, in 2007, my wife and I spent a few weeks in Ireland. Uh-huh. And it, it was late October, so we thought that we'd try to travel with no fixed itinerary. And that worked great until one warm and sunny Saturday when we decided to head down to Kinsale. Kinsale on the south coast of Ireland, famous for its very, beautiful cuisine, very nice town. Oh, God, it was a beautiful town. And we got there mid-afternoon, and the town was packed, even though it was late October. Mm-hmm. So apparently, a lot of Irelanders thought it would be a good idea, too. So um, there was not a single accommodation available in town. Mm-hmm. And, and so we just headed west along the coast until we got to Clonakilty, and we got there just at sundown, and we were able to find one room, the last room that was available in town, and it was on the second floor of this little old-fashioned hotel, kind of overlooking the little main street that runs through Clonakilty. Mm-hmm. And when we booked the room, the front desk clerk told me to park the car around the back, and I asked her if I could just leave the car out front, and she said, oh, you'll not be wanting to leave your car out there, which I thought was kind of funny, because, you know, it's a quiet little town. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, we were so tired at this point we just decided to call it quits and just you know have an early night we fell asleep and about an hour after that the music started and it turned out that there were three pubs within about 50 yards of where our room was and this was saturday night and apparently clonakilty is a very popular place for young irish to come and party oh yeah so <laughs> the music was just roaring from these three pubs okay so we were we were getting no sleep at all and finally, about 11.30, the music stopped, and the party just came right out from the pubs, right out into the main street. Mm. And so uh, about 2.30 in the morning, I got up, and I looked out the window, and here the entire main street was just flooded with these young kids just <laughs> having a blast. Oh, no. But it, it was crazy. They were having so much fun. And finally, about 3.30, the party finally broke up. And then uh, we started to nod off, and about that time, the street sweepers came in and started to sweep up all the broken glass. So finally, at 5.30 in the morning, we just called it quits, got all of our stuff in the car, and just took off and headed for Kenmare. And found a nice, quiet B&B in Kenmare, and the next night, we slept for like 14 hours. (laughs) I bet you slept good the next night. Well, you know, that's just... Every time I'm in Europe and I, I end up on a Friday or a Saturday night in the town center, because I like to be in the town center, 
there is a chance that you're going to be unlucky and surrounded by music that goes until the wee hours. And I don't know, sometimes I just figure, well, I'm not going to get any sleep. I might as well get out and do something. So I stay up past my bedtime and, and try not to fight it. But it's kind of a, a thing you want to be extra careful about on Fridays and Saturdays. Europeans love to party. The younger generation's out there till the wee hours. And I, fe- I hate to be the old guy screaming out the window, shut up, I'm trying to get some sleep, you know. <laughs> I don't think you want to do that either, but you do want to get some sleep. <laughs> well, the next time I'm going to rest up and join the party. That's that, what I learned. I was in Bern, the, the capital of Switzerland, and it happened yeah. to be the annual Buskers Festival. That means all the street musicians, the best street musicians in Europe, inundated the town. There must have been 20 groups performing at the same time all over Bern. And literally right outside my window there was a bandstand setting up, and I thought, oh, great, I'm not going to get any sleep for a long time tonight. And that was the, the case where I just said, had to say, hey, a lot of people travel all the way to Bern in Switzerland to be here for this festival. I was here not to stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to make the best out of this. And, and I went out there, and I had a great time. I'm so glad I had that attitude. And sometimes you just got to go out there and have a beer and wait till 2 o'clock in the morning. No doubt. Thanks for what you make of them, right? Yeah. All right, J.K., thanks for your call, and I uh, hope you have better sleeping next time you go to the south coast of crazy Ireland. You know what? It was unforgettable, so it yeah. was well worth it. It really is. That's the good attitude. All right, take care. Thanks a lot. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're uh, learning tips from our listeners, and one thing is, on a Friday and a Saturday, you don't know how noisy it's going to be until after the sun sets and the band starts to play. Kimberly from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania has written us an email, and Kimberly writes, On my last visit to Paris, I tried a new tactic for dinner. I found a small, very local heavy bistro. It was near my lodging. The food was very reasonably priced and very good. And so I returned there the following evening and the one after that. Beyond a reliably delicious and budget-friendly meal, I became a regular there. I highly recommend this method, especially for solo travelers who tend to feel more socially isolated in the evenings. You know, Kimberly, thank you for the email. This is a very good point. When you're in a town, it could be a a small town or a big city, you have the option to eat at the same place night after night after night. And uh, whereas you could make the case that it's better to go out and have the variety, there's a huge advantage of being a regular. And in Europe, they say you're a guest on the first night and a regular after that. And uh, they'll remember who you are. They'll they'll be joyful to have you back. Uh, you'll be able to eat your way through the menu. And if it was a good experience the night before, it's probably a good experience on the next night. So that's a very good tip. And I can think of a lot of places in Paris where I'd love to go night after night. We're enjoying some virtual travels with you, our listeners, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can share what stands out from your travels. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Martha's on the line from Shrewsbury in Massachusetts. Martha, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it, Rick. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to talk about Paris, my favorite city, and for people to think about doing something that's not just the tourist preparation. And I highly recommend that they go back and read Hemingway's A Movable Feast, which tells that story of the lost generation of Paris and Sylvia Beach Shakespeare and Company Bookstore. And you you go to Paris with a sense of the people who lived there before and want to be able to walk those streets and hear those stories. And Shakespeare and Company is one of my favorites now. Originally, Sylvia Beach, an American, created it in 1919 on Rue de but she uh, closed it in 41 because of the German occupation. But during that period of the first half century, um, she had Hemingway, she published James Joyce's Ulysses, she had D.H. Lawrence, and she supported 
uh, writers at that period. It was opened up 10 years later by an American ex-serviceman, and that's the story you can go to now on Rue de Boucherie across from Notre Dame. And that is where the Beat Generation went in the 60s. Um, James Baldwin, Allen Ginsberg, Anis Nin. And if you go into the bookstore, it seems like this just very small bookstore, but American books. So you can find tour books, you can find your books. But if you just take a little spiral staircase up to the second floor, which is the secret, you can go up to the second floor, and that's when you can sit and take books out that have been uh, perhaps touched by Baldwin or Hemingway. They were the books that were on loan. And it's this amazing secret story of Paris. So I highly recommend it. You know, that is such a great tip, Martha, and thank you for sharing that. Now, first of all, so people know this is the funky little ramshackle but filled with ambiance and history bookstore yes. across the river from the Notre Dame, right in the in the Latin yes. Quarter. It's so exciting to read a book like Hemingway's A Movable Feast and, and get yourself in the mind frame of a, of a different age, an age that you're fascinated by. And in the 1920s, Paris was just the go-to place for so many great artists, writers, painters, sculptors, philosophers, and so on. And then, as you mentioned, the Beat Generation also in the 60s. And this, uh, the tradition of Sylvia Beach and her bookstore, Shakespeare and Company, was really one that supported struggling writers. And even when I was a student, it was famous for um, struggling writers to sleep for free upstairs. They would just crash up there and they would house them because they, they were there, you know, chasing their, their creative dreams, writing their novel, and they didn't have enough money for a hotel and uh, the Shakespeare and Company bookstore would house them. And to this day, you have that spirit in there, and it is fun just to drop in whenever you're in Paris, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's um, it's a different take on Paris. Yeah. But most people don't know to go upstairs, so I just recommend everybody walk in, see the wonderful collection, and then walk up that spiral staircase yeah. and go back in time. So walk in, and, and then, and it's an English-language bookstore, so it's great if you're looking for a book uh, while you're on the road. And then, as you said, climb that little low-key spiral staircase up to the, the next floor, and you'll find that sort of uh, trip back in time for a struggling writer in Paris. Thanks, yes. Martha, for your call. Thank you, Rick. Kirk in Bellingham, Washington, sends us an email about his experience in Germany. Here's what Kirk writes. While it's understandable that first-time American visitors in Germany might be drawn to the West and the South, especially Bavaria, there are so many interesting places in Eastern Germany that Americans just don't appreciate. Our independent travel in the former East Germany included Berlin, Dresden, Potsdam, and the Luther sites of Erfurt, Wartburg Castle, and Wittenberg. There's many lesser-known sites as well in former Eastern Germany. Kirk, you are absolutely right. You know, we Americans tend to go to Bavaria uh, and the Rhineland and so on because that's what we occupied after World War II and that's where all of our grandfathers and relatives did their time in Europe. And uh, there's a lot more to Germany than that. And when you go to Germany, I think you can remember if you go east, you're going to get away from a lot of the crowds and you're going to find a lot of undiscovered and, and just wonderful destinations to give Germany an extra dimension. When you do that, understand your medieval history, understand your Renaissance history, and understand your 20th century history because the, the big powers, the big cities, the important centers of former communist DDR or Eastern Germany have a fascinating story to tell. What will you never forget about a trip you enjoyed overseas? We'd love to hear about it. You can send us a short email to radio at ricksteves.com. 
And Patricia's on the line from Bothell, Washington. Hey, Patricia, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Tell me about your most memorable experience. Well, the most special one, which was unexpected, was when we walked into the town of Estang. And there, up in the chateau, was the man. And he greeted me in Mandarin. He was the ex-president of France. And I think it's going to age me, because he was a president in the 60s, along with Pierre Trudeau in Canada. Oh, yeah. And so he he greeted me in Mandarin, because I'm... I'm I'm of Asian descent. And oh, I hear really? I was, here I was, I was going, bonjour, monsieur. You know, I was so excited <laughs> to see him. And he goes, ni hao. Oh, my goodness. And then, uh, this is Valérie yeah, Giscard d'Estaing, the yes, president of France mm-hmm. back in the 60s yes. or something. Yeah. And he was he was in his chateau that weekend. Oh. And it, and then, so when I went up to him, I said, can I have a photo with you? So he said, yes. And, he, you know, we had a photo together. I still have the photo. It was so exciting. His guard kept saying, okay, enough, enough. But he kept wanting huh. to talk. And then as we left, he goes, Jian, would you see you again? I go, wah. And he was going <laughs> to me in Chinese in Mandarin. Oh, so it was, it was a very memorable moment to see him, that he was so friendly, you know. That's a beautiful as, moment. And it's a sort yeah. of a lesson that, you know, you'll never uh, never know who you might meet when you get off the beaten path and you uh, explore exactly. these beautiful countries. Yeah. All right. It was a lovely village. And the Chateau had all the exhibits of his more memorable uh-huh. um, um, occasions of his presidency. So. All right. Hey, well, thank you for the call, Patricia. Bye now. Happy to be part of your program. Thanks. Bye-bye. Nick on Staten Island, New York, emailed us this. My wife and I went on a couple's trip to Sicily. It was the first time I drove in Europe. For us, it was a trip to visit all the sites all over Sicily, but also family in Messina. That rental car brought so many misadventures and memories, most of them fond. They inspired me to write about them. These were so many I didn't want to forget. Since it was a driving-related trip, I sent my report to the editor of the regional AAA Northeast website. They wound up publishing it, and I had never had any writings go to public before, so it was a big thrill. Nick, thanks for reporting, and you're right. Driving around Sicily can be kind of a, a comedy of errors, but as I think you found, I found if you don't make some bloopers, you're not having a good time. you really got to be able to laugh at your mistakes. Also, it's a great way to, to get to know and appreciate the, the friendship of strangers. And any time you're writing in Europe, whether you're, you're a comedy of errors or if you're an old pro at it, I think it's important to be journaling, to capture those memories while they're fresh. And who knows, you might become a travel writer like Nick is understanding. By the way, we've posted a link to Nick's article about driving in Sicily with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com slash radio. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Andrew Wakeling uploads the show to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. And our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other stations around the country are travel with Rick Steves. There's a list at ricksteves.com radio.